Good evening. Biden makes his first press conference. The USSR. What is we? What does the United States have to learn from the fall of its former rival? And Fukushima. It's been more than ten years since the disaster. We'll learn more about what led to that disaster and where things go from here. And vaccine hesitancy. What's New York City doing about it? With these and other stories, I'm Paul Durienza with the WBAI News for Thursday, March 25th, 2021. The suspect in the Colorado supermarket shooting appeared in court for the first time today, and a defense attorney immediately asked that he receive a mental health evaluation before the case against him proceeds. We cannot begin to assess the nature and depth of Mr. Elisa's mental illness until we have the discovery from the government. We will be filing additional charges in the next couple weeks. If people have not received any discovery yet from law enforcement, the defense hasn't received any discovery, so the people have no objection to the defendant's request. All right, and I'll issue a written order in that regard. All right, thank you. We'll be in recess. Ahmed al-Aliwi Alisa, 21, was silent during the brief hearing except to say yes to a question from the judge who advised him he's being charged with murder in the attack that killed 10 people, including a Boulder police officer. Alisa is also charged with attempted murder for allegedly shooting at another police officer who was unhurt. Boulder County District Attorney Michael Doherty said authorities plan to file more charges. A plea comes later in the process. And dredgers, tugboats, and even a backhoe failed to free a giant cargo ship wedged in each of Suez Canal on Thursday. More than 150 vessels are now backed up with hundreds more headed to the vital waterway and losses to global shipping mounting. The skyscraper-sized Ever Given, carrying a cargo between Asia and Europe, ran aground Tuesday in the narrow man-made canal dividing continental Africa from the Sinai Peninsula. But authorities have been unable to push the Panama flag container vessel aside. The Ever Given had been overcome by strong winds as it entered the canal with high winds and a sandstorm in the area Tuesday and winds gusting to 30 miles per hour. And the United States and Britain announced tough sanctions today against two holding companies tied to the military junta in Myanmar that seized control in a coup last month. The sanctions by Washington bar any U.S. person or company from conducting any sort of business with the coup leaders, including supplying them with funds or providing goods or services. Inside Myanmar, protesters returned to the streets today in large numbers. It was after people engaged in a silent strike by staying home and closing businesses for the day. Half a dozen demonstrators were reported killed by security forces. The coup ousted the elected government led by Aung San Suu Kyi, whose party won a landslide election victory last November. At least 286 people have been killed in the ensuing crackdown and 2,906 people have been arrested. And President Joe Biden at his first news conference Thursday left the door open to scrubbing parts of the filibuster rule that allows senators to block legislation by requiring a 60 vote majority for laws to pass the chamber. Biden added the filibuster was being abused in a gigantic way by Republicans, opening the possibility for modification. The 78 year old president also for the first time said he his plan is to run for reelection. He, he uh, added that is my expectation. Biden declared that hope is on the way, and he doubled his original goal on COVID-19 vaccines by pledging that the nation will administer 200 million doses by the end of his first 100 days in office. 
I'm setting a second goal, and that is we will, by my 100th day in office, have administered 200 million shots in people's arms. That's right, 200 million shots in 100 days. I know it's ambitious, twice our original goal, but no other country in the world has even come close, not even close to what we are doing. I believe we can do it. And today, we made a historic investment in reaching the hardest hit and the most vulnerable communities, the highest risk communities, at, uh, as a consequence of the virus, by investing an additional $10 billion in being able to reach them. Meanwhile, early Thursday, North Korea launched the first ballistic missile test of the Biden administration, possibly a measured provocation to catch the new president's attention. The president ranked North Korea's nuclear capabilities as his biggest international problem. Biden also addressed China's rising stature as an economic competitor to the United States. Biden says he'll never back down from holding China accountable for how it treats its minority Muslim population. No American president ever back down from speaking out of what's happening in the Uyghurs, what's happening in Hong Kong, what's happening in-country. In, in That's who we are. The moment a president walks away from that, as the last one did, is the moment we begin to lose our legitimacy around the world. It's who we are. So I see stiff competition with China. China has an overall goal, and I don't criticize them for the goal, but they have an overall goal to become the leading country in the world, the wealthiest country in the world, and the most powerful country in the world. That's not going to happen on my watch. On Afghanistan, Biden committed to pulling U.S. troops out of Afghanistan, but expressed doubts about meeting the May 1st deadline that was set by an agreement signed under Trump. We will leave, he said. The question is when we will leave. Biden was the first chief executive for decades to reach at this point in his term without holding a formal news conference. That delay increased anticipation for a chief executive who has deliberately tried to turn down the temperature in a city over overheated by his predecessor. At one point, Biden indirectly spoke about restoring dignity to the office of the president. For the soul, dignity, honor, honesty, transparency to the American political system. Two, to rebuild the backbone of this country, the middle class, hardworking people and people struggling in the middle class. They built America and unions built them. The third reason I said I was running was to unite the country. And generically speaking, all of you said, no, you can't do that. Well, I've not been able to unite the Congress, but I've been uniting the country based on the polling data. The scene for Biden's press conference was very different from the past. The president still stood behind a podium in the East Room against a backdrop of flags. But due to the pandemic, the White House limited attendance and only 30 socially distanced chairs or journalists were spread out in the large room. And in related news, the Russian government said earlier this week the United States had missed an opportunity to search for a way out of the dead end in Russian-American relations. The Russians say have been caused by Washington. That action, days after President Biden referred to Vladimir Putin as a killer on ABC News, adding the Russian president would pay a price 
for alleged election interference in the United States. Russia responded to the slur by recalling its Washington ambassador for consultations. While praising the American people, Putin responded the legacy of slavery and the country's treatment of Native Americans weighed heavily on its dealings abroad. He added, I remember when I was young and I got into fights with my friends. We also we always used to say whoever calls names is called that himself. And Jack Matlock was the top American envoy or ambassador in Moscow from 1987 to 1991. He says the United States won't be able to deal successfully with its most important challenges without working with other large countries to manage global threats. Matlock suggests the Russian and American presidents meet as soon as possible to prevent another Cold War from arising between the two rivals. He points to history as an example. Decisions like expanding NATO and later withdrawing from our arms control treaties, increasingly seeming uh, to the Russians, and by the way, the Chinese as well, that we were simply trying to control the world, to surround them militarily. And we started getting pushback. That's one of the problems today. If we are going to solve our problems at home, and they are very large. We are going to have to stop fighting wars everywhere, putting so much money into military and destructive things, and turn it here at home to build our infrastructure, repair it, and to begin to repair our own political process rather than interfering in others. We have some military presence, I understand, in over 80 countries. Why? We have to rethink the whole idea that we won the Cold War and therefore have a right, in effect, to to judge other countries, to invade them if we wish, or sanction them if we wish. This is not the way to lead the world to deal with the real problems. We've got a pandemic going on, and we don't solve it until everybody solves it. Uh, we are and a serious deterioration of the environment, and it's going to get worse if we don't do something about it. And, you know, none of these big issues, whether they're terrorism or the environment or pandemics, none of them are going to be solved unless we have Russia and China working with us, and it's in their interest to do so. So why we constantly make enemies of them on issues which are not the most important ones to us it was a mystery to me. Well, let's focus on Putin and President Biden calls the guy a murderer, even though that's, as you point out, that's a misnomer, because then what would you call Biden, who is a pro-war hawk in his day? It is a big mistake to get personal, as we have done, and not just Biden. This was happening, of course, with the second George Bush. It was happening with Obama. The point is, who gave us the right to start giving report cards on other countries, particularly when our own problems at home are getting worse and worse? After all, who are killers? Is it someone who makes a war against a country which has not attacked us, as George Bush, the second uh, George Bush, did in invading Iraq, creating hundreds of thousands of deaths? Or is it someone who assassinates foreign leaders, as Trump did with the attack on the Iranian? 
Or is it someone who uses attacks on terrorists to kill innocent people as collateral damage, as Obama has done? This matter of criticizing other people, of putting labels on them, should have no place in international diplomacy. I hope we will get off this personalization and start thinking about where our real interests are. Is there a chance that we can find a new road out of this? There is a way out of it, because I think an attempt to create an empire, which is never going to work, it was John Quincy Adams, who 200 years ago warned us not to get involved in other people's fights, even if these were attempts at freedom. And he said, if you start getting involved in other people's fights, then you're going to be seen an empire builder and an imperialist yourself. And this will, in fact, make it impossible for you to be a democracy at home. Also, you know, uh, Washington's farewell speech when he warned against permanent alliances. Actually, the American tradition from the beginning of our independence has been to stay out of these fights, even if we might sympathize with some of them. And that's Jack Matlock. He was the American ambassador to the Soviet Union from 1987 to 1991. And earlier this month was the 10th anniversary to the Fukushima nuclear disaster when three nuclear plants melted down and two others suffered massive hydrogen explosions after a tsunami struck the coast of Japan. In that time, a massive cleanup is continuing as tens of thousands were evacuated. Although some have returned, a large area was rendered uninhabitable. Longtime anti-nuclear activist Harry Wasserman has been following the aftermath of the disaster for the past decade. Well, Fukushima was a complex of six reactors. In building it, there was a major bluff there, and they took down the bluff to put four of the six reactors at sea level so that they could save on pumping the water up the mountain. And, of course, there's four reactors at sea level 10 years ago on March 11th, 2011, were hit by the tsunami. So the tsunami barreled into the nuclear plants, the four of them that were down at sea level, and destroyed the intake. And you had three of the four had meltdowns. They had lost the coolant, they lost power. The irony is that a nuclear plant has to have outside power to operate its cooling systems. Three of the reactors were online when the tsunami hit. Somehow hydrogen poured into the fourth reactor, and it blew up also. But they didn't have a meltdown there. So we have three reactor cores that released more radiation than was released at Hiroshima and Nagasaki by a factor of, in some instances, of more than 100. This radiation went all over Japan. Nobody knows exactly where it came down. Parts of Japan are still much too radioactive to be safe. TEPCO and and others have say that environmentalists and anti-nuclear campaigners overestimated the damage that... Give me a break. I have dealt with the health impacts of atomic radiation for more than 40 years. I went into Three Mile Island area after the accident where they said no one was harmed. I spent the worst week of my life interviewing people in their kitchens, having them show me their tumors and their lesions and uh, talk and their fair hair falling out. So uh, whenever radiation is released, people are harmed. The industry always lies about it. And in addition to that, Fukushima had six reactors 
if you put their net present value at around $10 billion each, which is reasonable at this point in time, uh, you will find that this accident, within a matter of 15 minutes, destroyed $60 billion worth of property. Show me another instance in world history where $60 billion worth of property is destroyed in 15 minutes. Plus, they shut, thankfully, all the other reactors in Japan. A few of them have come back online, but the, the damage to Japan is in, incalculable. And because of the radiation that was spread by this accident, there absolutely should not be Olympics in Japan next year. I mean, it's outrageous they're even thinking about it. You have very pro-nuclear government, and that's what they... The issue with nuclear power is the individual reactors. You've got four, more than 400 reactors worldwide. You've got more than 90 here in the United States. Each one of them could be a Fukushima or a Chernobyl or a Three Mile Island. All the reactors in the United States are more than 30 years old except for one. Every one of them has tremendously complex issues. What is the obsession with nuclear power, despite all the resistance there is to it, at this point you would think there would be just so much resistance to this idea. The problem that they face is that if we go to renewables and efficiency, which we are doing inexorably, it will happen. It is happening now because you've had an astonishing technological event in human history with the advent of renewables. Solar, wind, batteries, and LED efficiency so radically exceeded technological expectations that the fossil fuel and nuclear industries are being driven out of business. And you have tremendous investments in them that people don't want to give up on. Even fracking now, which was supposed to be so cheap, is uneconomical. To resist this huge technological and economic shift, the industry keeps coming back to these ridiculous nuclear plants, which Everybody thought was we're going to be so cheap. But the reality is when we started the anti-nuclear movement, the grassroots no-nukes movement in the early 1970s, Richard Nixon said there would be a 1,000 nuclear reactors in the United States by the year 2000. In the year 2000, there were 104. We're down now to about 94. There are not going to be any new big nuclear plants built in the United States. Bill Gates and some other people are pushing small nuclear plants those won't fly either. Nothing now can compete with solar and wind. Anti-nuclear activist Harry Wasserman. There have been reports radiation from Fukushima reached the shores of the United States and tuna caught at sea were found with elevated radiation levels. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. In state and local news, the top Democrat on the Assembly's impeachment investigation says lawmakers could consider adding the reports of Governor Andrew Cuomo's family members and those with ties to the administration receiving access to COVID-19 testing in the early days of the pandemic. The Assembly is already investigating allegations of sexual harassment reported by current and former aides in the administration, as well as how the handling of nursing home deaths during the pandemic uh, affected death rates. Lawmakers are also reviewing a report in the Times Union over reports surrounding the construction of the replacement for the Tappan Zee Bridge. The Times Union and the Washington Post on Thursday reported family members of the governor, including his brother Chris Cuomo of CNN, received COVID-19 tests from state employees at a time when test supplies were scarce.
And Mayor Bill de Blasio is launching a vaccination effort directed at theater workers and actors to help revive New York City's theater industry, where stages have been dark for more than a year. The initiative is aimed at allowing theaters to begin preparing for the full the fall theater season through rehearsals and set building. The city will set up vaccination centers with appointments held exclusively for theater workers in the theater district and will have pop-up vaccination sites at off-Broadway theaters around the city. The initiative doesn't make make all Broadway workers eligible, eligible for vaccination, a power that resides with the state. Currently, however, more than 80 percent of New York City adults are eligible to get vaccinated, including all adults aged 50 years and older and those with underlying health conditions. And in the continuing race to boost vaccination rates as COVID-19 variants spread, some elected officials and community members are working to overcome mistrust and improve access among people of color. But there's room for improvement. Linda Perry has the story. Mean hesitancy is slowing down the recovery, especially in communities hardest hit. A key to improvement could lie in strategies used recently. According to public advocate Jamani Williams, New York is in a race between vaccines and COVID-19 variants, those infectious strains of the virus. He says the race is neck and neck and that rushing to reopen in April will only let the virus get ahead of us in this race. It seems like uh, based on some of the things that are happening, we're starting to make a, a, a dent in some of that hesitancy in, in the black and brown community and immigrant community. I think there's still a lot of dis- disparity there that we have to push on. Uh, I, I got mine uh, very publicly and I'm pushing folks uh, to do it. I know uh, the attorney general and, and some pastors and folks did that as well. I think that's helping, helping as people see more people who look like them, their neighbors getting it. It's helping. But we're, we're very far from where we need to be. And I think that's where we need to put our, our brain power and our energy, uh, not in trying uh, to reopen. Mark Levine, the chair of the New York City Council's Health Committee, agrees. He says there's still enormous inequality in the pace of vaccinations. It has improved some since the early days uh, back in December and January, but we're not doing enough to build trust in the vaccine and trust in the institutions delivering it. Um, when when we were trying to boost census participation last spring, the city sent out uh, an army of outreach workers and contracted with hundreds of community-based organizations to send the message that the census was important. And it worked. We did pretty well on census response. We haven't had that level of mobilization yet. And it's not in the headlines today because the biggest problem is still the shortage of a vaccine. But we're just a few weeks away from uh, that being flipped on its head. And um, there being more supply than demand, and that's what's gonna, when it's going to become glaringly obvious that we haven't done enough yet. Jamani Williams says what's important is to reactivate the network already in place that was so successfully used on the ground with the census. While data shows vaccine hesitancy in some black and brown communities is falling, vaccination rates are still highest in white communities. Linda Perry, WBAI News, New York. And Hunts Point, a poor community in the South Bronx, has the lowest percentage of vaccinated adults in the city. The neighborhood's low vaccination rate isn't just the result of an unequal rollout. It's also a lack of trust in the vaccine and government that are playing a role. Denny Jacob reports. Hunts Point, talking to people about why they might not want the COVID-19 vaccine. 
I'm heading to the strip mall on East 163rd Street and Southern Boulevard. The streets are active here as businesses try to draw people inside. Outside of value tax services, Anthony Guerrero is passing flyers to a mostly unreceptive audience. He tells me he's not planning on getting the vaccine despite already having had COVID. I just feel that um, um, there's no real proof of it. It hasn't been out too long, and I'm a little skeptical about it. Despite Anthony's skepticism, there's actually substantial proof in the efficacy of the approved COVID-19 vaccines. Anthony says his experience left him in bed for two weeks straight, but he says even if he got sick again from a variant strain, he wouldn't get the vaccine. The low vaccination rate in Hunts Point may be due to a lack of information about the vaccine, since 34% of Bronx households lack broadband internet at home. That's more than the rate for the city. That's also significant when trying to schedule an appointment online, one of the most efficient ways to do so. Anthony may get around to finding the facts and being convinced in the future, but the city may have a harder time with someone like Johnny Holmes. He tells me he just doesn't trust the government. You said you weren't planning on getting the vaccine. Why is that? I don't trust the government. Why don't you trust the government? Why should we have 400 years of slavery? Why would I trust you? While the internet can help, it's also home to misinformation and conspiracy theories about the virus. Conspiracy theories about COVID-19 have ranged from the virus being engineered in a Chinese research lab to the vaccine being a way for the FDA to track people. It also paints a picture of what's to come when the next pandemic strikes. So while the internet can help some access the vaccine and information about it, for others, it becomes problematic. We do know that people trust their peers and their um, family, and they like get a lot of health information from their social network, both online and offline. That's Spring Cooper, an associate professor at the CUNY School of Public Health. Her research interests include the prevention of disease through behavior change and vaccination. She says that the city needs to figure out more creative ways to reach people who aren't on social media or lack access to a computer. And, and you know, we're not having as much face-to-face interaction, so I think social media becomes more important for that. And um, we've seen this trend, you know, of a lot of people who are getting vaccinated, posting their photos, talking about their symptoms, like whatever has happened for them and sharing that. And I think that is something that's very valuable. In response to the pandemic, Mayor Bill de Blasio accelerated his Internet master plan. It aims at expanding Internet access to 600,000 underserved city residents by the end of 2021. But in the meantime, Pamela Bilo Thomas, a PhD candidate in computer science at the University of Notre Dame, wonders. Going forward, are we doomed to, you know, propaganda and misinformation everywhere? In, in some ways, yeah, just because it's just kind of how people are. One can only hope that the next pandemic is nothing like the current one. Denny Jacob, WBAI News, New York. And that's some of the news for Thursday, March 25th, 2021. The news was produced with Linda Perry. Our engineer is Reggie Johnson from New York City. I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening.